0: You might think of big transport and civil engineering consultancies as being focused on just meeting the needs of their customers on specific projects and keeping their ideas about the future fairly close to their chests for competitive advantage. Companies do make public presentations, but often these are on projects they have just done. But they can be more than this, and especially of late, there are companies that are becoming more committed to working with a wide range of stakeholders, not just for a short-term benefit, but to enhance our general understanding and to improve the environment in which we all work. Stakeholders might include clients, potential clients, non-clients, the community and even competitors. Just recently I was privileged to meet Dr Chris Lubkeman from the Arab Consulting Group, which is a major engineering organisation with clients around the world. Chris is an Arab Fellow and Global Director. He leads their foresight plus research plus innovation area. He travels the world giving keynote speeches, presentations and facilitation. And I am privileged to have him on the line now. Chris, thanks very much for your time.
1: David, it's a great pleasure to be here with you.
0: Now, how did your team come about?
1: Well, you know, David, I joined Arab about 16 years ago as the head of R&D. And after about three years, one of the things that I observed was that many of our projects took between 10 and 20 years between their inception and their realization. That was not necessarily because of the length of the engineering aspect, but sometimes some big civil works are fairly complex and take quite a long time to gestate, to be approved, and then to come to their fruition. And I was wondering... What were we doing to ensure that our projects were fit for purpose when they were done? Not just solving the engineering problems, but to make sure that we were really solving and thinking about the context into which these projects, if you will, be given birth into. And I realized that we had a lot more to think about than we were at that time.
0: It's interesting you consider things like roads but uh, more importantly things like hospitals what might be a good hospital now in 20 years time could be radically changed.
1: Absolutely. You know hospitals, schools, museums, highways, railroads, uh, retail, we've looked at many different things and all of them have a, a sort of a I call the three timelines you have the now, the new and the next. The so now is really The things which we're looking at today that are implementable today, the new is sort of three to five years away, and the next is around 20 years. That's, for me, the sweet spot when it's not quite science fiction but it's not quite just keeping both feet firmly planted in the mud.
0: The thing we often do now is we talk about automating things, automatic cars and so on, but we tend to talk about it as just automating what we do already, but really this new technology could change our whole approach completely.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think the big key here is the possibility to understand patterns in the way that we've never been able to understand patterns before and these patterns, you can think of all all the way into the innermost parts of our bodies, out to how does a whole city move around? And for the very, very, very first time, we're able to gather this data so that we can see the patterns of life, I and mean then quite figuratively, all the way from the genome up to an, an entire region where people are moving, where goods are moving, where water is moving, electricity, so we can see where, the, where, the, where it's being used and where it's being wasted. And it's the same in our bodies.
0: How did clients take to this? Did uh, that help you work with clients over what the, the brief is, not just what the outcome is according to what, as they see it?
1: You know, David, it really depends on which client groups we're talking about. Some clients really truly want to think about the next 20 years, so that they're prepared for those 20 years. And other clients are just happy to get on and do what they know. They just want is sort of yesterday's business and today's delivery. So it's really quite dependent. You know, I, every time you present a client with real interesting, challenging thinking, they rise to the challenge. Uh, but, and I wish I could. But at Arab, you know, we do like to challenge our clients to think bigger and think more systemically than what they might want to. And again, some of our clients embrace it and others are not quite so keen.
0: So it's been the case reading anthropology that education for many centuries was trying to tell people what the wisdom of the elders was in the past. Modern science and technology is moving so quickly and we're embracing it that what the future is, is not just a reflection of the past. Is is that where you're particularly getting involved in?
1: Well, yeah. Yeah, I agree, David. And on the other hand, I don't. I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. There are certain values which survive the test of time. I believe that if we would go and talk to, even say, the two sides of the bench, or the two sides of the house, or parliament, or two sides of any story, we would probably agree on um, between 60 and 80 percent of the values which are very human. And that we want our children to have a better world. We believe that education is the right thing, etc. I think there's sort of value sets which transcend everything. And then there's other that last twenty to thirty, maybe forty percent, where we can disagree on how to execute. So yeah, I think that um, the lessons of our elders are actually quite important because they do give us a, a perspective which we perhaps need to remember, and that is community is really so crucial to engender and to create spaces and places for community, that respect for nature and the systems which we depend upon it is crucial for our next generations to have a world where we'll be proud of, and perhaps you know, the humane treatment of each other is perhaps something our, we have to remember from our, uh, from our elders. And I think um, I think those are really important lessons not to forget is that the humanity that we share.
0: Oh yeah, I, I totally agree. My my great concern is that we seem to be in the politics of opposites, where we politicise debates right up to things like climate change, mm. where we're arguing without reference to those uh, issues of almost morality and and consideration of the future. I'm, I'm certainly not denying those of the past, but is there a concern I have read of some of your politicians, uh, Cory Booker, I think, who tries very hard to work with people whom you might not think he would normally work with, and, it, and you can get agreed to bipartisan directions, although it becomes harder in election years. Is that political process, without getting into particular sides, but is that po- political process of opposites still a difficulty?
1: Look, David, you know, I have to say the unfortunate reality of the world today seems to be, no matter what continent or hemisphere you stand in, that the uh, that the political dialogue, and that's politics with a small p, seems to be overwhelmed by politics with a large p. And to me, polit- politics with a small p is the art of dialogue and finding a consistent resolution in the path, in the middle path. And this has been... Our, um, I think our success with our democracies over the years is finding that middle path. And now when we're sort of exacerbating the extreme opposites, I think that's unfortunate. I will, I will say, David, however, that there are, in my view, certain inevitables which we do need to be careful of when we're looking at the future, when we're thinking about the scenarios which can and could be. And some of those inevitables have definitely to do with climate change or the, how our oceans are changing, how our, our weather patterns are changing. And I'm you know, I I listen to our scientists, so I believe in the precautionary principle. And therefore the decisions which we're making today should be those which allow us to look back with some degree of pride and that we were thinking about how to prevent worse catastrophe than not. For example, building in floodplains or building critical infrastructure where we know in 10 years they could be um, destroyed by storm surges that are coming more and more or, or bushfires which seem to be coming more and more it seems like you know we need to be taking these new conditions into account and it would be irresponsible not to do so
0: do you think sometimes even the transport profession takes on a fundamentalism where we take one fact and we assume that that just totally obliterates the opposition and so on. We, we, in Australia, we have what we call political three-word slogans without doing that. Sometimes we have a fundamentalism in transport that one particular mode will solve all problems. Do you think we need to show the world in our development of engineering projects that we can, as you say, interact without being strident based on a few small factors.
1: Yes, I, um, David, I can't speak specifically to what you were alluding to, but I will give you three words which I think are crucial. I, wasn't, I didn't know you were going to ask me anything around this, so I couldn't prepare to understand what the transport politics are, and I'll show you right now. But you know, seamless integrated mobility. This is what every citizen in the world around is looking for, our young people, are not interested per se or in everyone in owning a car like you know I'm 55 so a car for our generation is more of a trophy and a mandatory part of your of your life but my teenagers they are less interested in owning a car but they want guaranteed safe and secure mobility and so when we look to the future I'm absolutely convinced that this seamless integration of Different modes of mobility is what will give a city its leg up if you are stuck in one single mode you will lose the the, the war for talent and is that's um, not where any of us really want to be so it's that, it's that integrated mobility which I think is truly the key for uh, the future success of every every city, no matter where you are in the world.
0: Going back to where you were, you, was, you said earlier that we have now an immense information about that. A, a critical element is spending the time and effort to interpret all the information that's coming in. Is that one of the key issues for the future?
1: So the, the amount of data that we can now acquire is increasing exponentially And the interpretation of that data is in its infancy. So I would argue that many data sets have information which are embedded within them that we have yet to figure out what it's saying to us. So taking time to look at those data sets, to visualize them, to interpret them in a nonpartisan way becomes really a great challenge and a huge opportunity. I mean, I talked to some of our transportation planners and they say this is the golden age for transportation planning because for the very first time in our lives, we truly know where people are going to and where they're coming from. Up until now, it's always been a guess and someone's sitting on a street corner with a clicker in their hand and they click right turn, left turn straight. And then all they're looking at are those very banal numbers. But now with our sort of our smartphone data We know where people are going and we actually can understand that. And so this is the the moment in time that's quite exciting for mobility, hugely exciting.
0: My first working in technical areas in modeling, we just looked at the journey to work, whereas the journey for social recreation, for shopping and for education and so on are a mass of uh, information and other reasons while people get uh, get around. I have an interest, then, in the key measures that we use. In the past, it was, can we just get more traffic down a road, which is still important, but are we saying that we might get to more core of why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and what other alternatives might be?
1: Yeah, I think we're getting there, David. We're, we're We're not quite close enough to the why yet. I think over the next five years, 10 years, we'll understand the why a lot more. We're still now getting a grip on the what. For example, as you've just described, we once only looked at a trip from home to workplace, and that was in a central business district, and it was assumed it was a sort of a yo-yo journey. You went and you returned. But today, the meaning of work has changed. The meaning of the trip has changed so that we're no longer expecting a singular movement from a suburb to the central business district and a sort of an outmoded mental map of how a city works and how our populations are going to be moving, so that a trip might actually engage multiple types of activities along the way. The most wonderful example for that would be someplace like uh, Hong Kong. Granted, very dense populated, Uh, the movement is mostly by mass transit, but what one can say is because of the retail opportunities, which are associated with those mass transit movements, that the citizens, as they're moving to and fro, they actually do different types of things almost simultaneously. So they'll grab some food on their way home from the workplace while they're going through transit. So there's not this segregation, but it's the aggregation of multiple types of activities that's all around this transit-oriented design. So we're thinking of mobility as the urban enabler, as the city's enabler, as the economy's enabler, and the mobility is really, if you will, the arteries, the, the veins which allow us have economic engines which we want.
0: One of my key interests is how, what are the key measures that we use uh, in some cases uh, it has been pushing in a modern sense towards just profitability or or at least maximizing return financially from transport systems yet there are a whole range of other key measures in a city and sydney one of them that's becoming a little more prominent is equity that are we serving areas fairly do you think we're taking a broader look at what is the real measure of uh, your know, measures mm. of what we're trying to achieve,
1: so I think we're getting better and better at that. On one hand, and we're getting worse and worse. <laughs> so we've got these sort of, <laughs> you know, we've got these two trends happening simultaneously. I think you've already named one, which is the profitability, which is the direct measure, not necessarily the indirect measure, because the turnstile income is easy to assess. The economic engine, which is associated with the movement of the individual and the purchasing patterns of the individual while they're empowered by that transit or transportation, or whatever mode, is much more difficult to assess. But what we can begin to see with the data of the indi- about the individuals who are moving from point A to B to C to D to E to F is we can begin to track and trace the income brackets, the modal shifts, um, so that you can, be, so you can really begin to see this. And then the question of social equity is able to be engaged. Without the data, you can't engage the question. And so now I, the, the, I say the positive part is we now can be able to look at this in a very real way, and then as a society, we have to decide the value of allowing all citizens to have the opportunity to work, to contribute, and to pay taxes through their work. Right? That's, uh, or do we just want it just to be for one segment of society? Are we happy with stratification? And those are much more difficult questions to answer all
0: Nonetheless, an exciting time and to have a broad vision, I think, is, is absolutely wonderful. Not that, That's often used, broad vision, but, uh, as a general statement, yet I think uh, you and your group are very specifically getting into that. Chris, I've uh, taken much of your time, but I do appreciate it greatly. Thank you very much.
1: David, it's a real pleasure and thanks for calling.
0: That is Chris Lubkeman, who is uh, an Arab Consulting Fellow and Global Director, and he leads their force plus research plus innovation area.